the best leaders that I know, uh, the people that I've resonated with, that I've been drawn to uh, in, in lots of different contexts are humble. Uh, they are, are thoughtful, but they also believe that they can do things that others can't. And so it's an interesting mix, really, um, of, of being humble, of keeping your humility, but also charting a course and a vision that is bold uh, and, and recognizes that if you don't push the envelope, organizations don't grow uh, and people don't grow. And so I think that from my point of view, it's sort of this very interesting mix of people who are, have visions, who are resilient and persistent in their pursuit of those visions, um, but are also really humble. They also understand the importance of team, um, that any good leader realizes that they're nothing without the team around them and even less without followers who deeply believe in what it is that they're saying. Welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious You, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CHELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CHELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash academics and select Centers of Excellence. This is Melissa Morris Olson, and I am your host for this episode of Ingenious You. I am so excited to have Dr. Joshua Weiss as our guest today. Dr. Weiss is the co-founder of the Global Negotiations Initiative at Harvard University and a senior fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project. He is also the founding director of the very popular Master of Science in Leadership and Negotiation graduate degree at Baypath University. Josh speaks and publishes widely on leadership, negotiation, mediation, and systemic approaches to dealing with conflict. His newest book, which comes out later this summer, is The Book of Real-World Negotiations, Successful Strategies from Business, Government, and Daily Life. Josh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Melissa. It is really a privilege to be with you. You know, I'm struck by uh, your career uh, pathway. And I'm I'm curious, how in the world did you become a negotiation and conflict resolution specialist? I can't imagine as a child that this was on your radar, or maybe, maybe it was. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. There was absolutely nothing linear about it. Um, it was not one of those things where, uh, you know, as you say, where I thought that this was something that I would do. I mean, I will certainly say when I was younger, uh, I was always the mediator uh, with my friends and trying to sort things out. Um, you know, in, in some ways, too, part of, I think, what you end up doing in your life starts at a younger age and is shaped by a lot of things. And, and in, in, some, in, in one big way, you know, my, my grandmother's family all died in the Holocaust, other than her and her brother who left. And that was a really big part of the narrative of my upbringing. And, you know, I always tried to understand how something like that could happen. And I never could. It, you know, it's, I, I feel like the most basic of questions that plague humanity continue to plague humanity because they're, they go to the core of who we are. And, and trying to understand something like the Holocaust um, or other destructive conflicts um, 
is a little bit hard to get your head around. And so when I went to uh, Syracuse University undergrad, I was a history major and, and actually focused a good bit on, on the Holocaust and the Vietnam era. And at that time, the study of conflict was not really codified in the way it is today. Um, it was, you know, there were courses and things like that, but it was still in a relatively nascent stage. And um, I started working, I wasn't 100% sure what it was exactly what I wanted to do at that point. And then um, it turned out that my my mother's family had a, a family business in Canada where she grew up and it was a land management and development company. And I went there, they were looking for somebody from my generation to run it. And I tried and it was interesting and they wanted me to stay, but I just didn't quite feel like it was my calling. And and one day a, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, what? how's it going up there? And I said, it's okay, you know. And and I said, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I just bought a round the world ticket. I'm going backpacking for a year. <laughs> and I said, you are? And he said, yes. And he said, why? You want to go? And I said, yeah. And so I sold everything I owned. Um, and I bought a ticket, which at the time uh, was $1,500. And you could just keep going west till you got back around to where you um, started. And you had a year. And I thought, how fascinating is this? And I went. And it was transformative in, in many ways, in particular, in terms of relying on myself. You know, when you backpack, it's not typical travel. Um, it's hard travel. You know, I had a couple of t-shirts, a pair of shorts, and <laughs> a sweatshirt, and whatever. And 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 what was interesting, um, and, and how this ties into sort of my professional pathway, is that I kept finding myself in the middle of conflict. So um, I was in India, and there was a Hindu-Muslim riot um, that occurred around me. Um, I was in Nepal and um, was on my way from Kathmandu to a place called Pakra, which was where you did hiking, um, and got stuck with a lorry driver's strike. And so we sat there watching the, the parties in the middle of the road negotiating. Um, and then I went and went to Europe and, and found myself in the middle of the former Yugoslavia it was, as it was coming apart. And, and then finally spent time trying to figure out what happened to my grandmother's family, um, who not only died in the Holocaust, but it was unclear where they died. Um, they were some of the early uh, people to have been sent to the camps. And so I went to six different concentration camps trying to get information. And so all of those things, you know, really wore down on me. And I thought to myself, when I get home, I have to try to do something. I don't know what, but something. And then I got home and applied to graduate school and, and was fortunate to get into American University in Washington, D.C. and into their international politics program. And they said, you have to pick a concentration. And I said, okay. And I opened the book and I looked and there was this thing called peace and conflict resolution and it flew off the page literally and hit me in the forehead. And that was the beginning. And um, I really got a, a fire lit on for me then um, for all of this. And I, became to, I came to realize that conflict was such a fundamental part of all our lives and, and how few people really understood it and understood how you try to deal with it. Um, and so that was really the beginning of the journey. And I would say the negotiation piece to this came in because I, I tend to be fairly practically oriented. I, I like uh, things where I can try to make a difference, where I can dive in and, and deal with things, different kind of processes. And, and I felt like negotiation was one of those realms where it was really ripe um, for that, for that practical application and that people understood it and were um, intrigued by it. Um, and so that's how I started. And uh, it, it's been quite a journey um, in lots of ways. And, and it, it's not the easiest thing to make a sort of living in this field if you're not teaching and things along those lines. And so that's one of those challenges of figuring out how do you do something that you love uh, and, and still make a living. And so that was the journey. And um, I'm, I really am blessed. I absolutely love this. And I'm fascinated by it um, every day. Yeah. Wow. What a powerful story. There are lots of things there. I just learned about you that I didn't know. People who know you know that you are really, really good. You're innately good at negotiation. And negotiation is one of those things that may seem easy on the surface, but uh, from reading what you've written and, and hearing you speak, I know that it's anything but easy. Um, but there, there seems to be a science almost to it mm -hmm. in how you teach and write about it. So 
Um, you have worked with the leaders of some of the most significant organizations in the world, business, government, nonprofit. And I'm curious what you have learned from your work with these organizations about leadership. And if there's anything that has surprised you or that has stayed with you mm. from the work that you've done. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think in, in many ways, um, I think what I've learned is that really good leadership is not often what it's talked about in the literature um, from where I sit. Um, I, you know, the best leaders that I know, uh, the people that I've resonated with, that I've been drawn to uh, in, in lots of different contexts are humble. Uh, they are, are thoughtful, but they also believe that they can do things that others can't. And so it's an interesting mix, really, um, of, of being humble, of keeping your humility, but also charting a course and a vision that is bold uh, and, and recognizes that if you don't push the envelope, organizations don't grow uh, and people don't grow. And so I think that from my point of view, it's sort of this very interesting mix of people who are, have visions, who are resilient and persistent in their pursuit of those visions, um, but are also really humble. They also understand the importance of team, um, that any good leader realizes that they're nothing without the team around them, and even less without followers who deeply believe in what it is that they're saying. So I think that those were surprises for me. I, I imagined that the best leaders would be these charismatic figures um, who moved people. And, and it's interesting because the more that I've been around sort of these charismatic leaders, what I often come away feeling is there's not nearly as much substance to them. They're good at engaging people, but when it comes to ideas, when it comes to really good strategy, sometimes that's devoid from their thinking because they rely so heavily on their charisma. Mm. Um, so, so I think that was a big surprise to me. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's a little bit like negotiation where, you know, people's conception of negotiation is one thing. And for me, you know, really effective negotiation is very, very different than what most think. Well, and that's, that's a really reassuring perspective, I think, especially for those who may not necessarily view themselves as having leadership potential uh, because they may be more quiet or they may not be that person that's out uh, in a bold kind of way externally. And yet what you're saying, I think, is that leadership potential, you're drawing the box much bigger mm -hmm. in terms of leadership potential and who has the capacity to lead perhaps than than what some of the stereotypes might suggest. I think so. And, and, and you know, um, I wouldn't really have, have started the program at Baypath if I didn't really believe that, that everybody had leadership ability. I think it's just a question of, um, you know, there, there's a, a leadership role and then there's leadership actions. And everybody within an organization can take leadership actions. It's not limited to the C-suite or others. And I think when you have employees uh, and folks from top to bottom who see things that way, then they don't hesitate to jump in when there's a problem. Um, they feel empowered. And, and I think that that's, that's the way that you do this. And I believe very strongly that people can, everybody has a ceiling that they can achieve. There's not one cookie cutter approach. And I believe that you know, when people come into our program and other leadership programs, they can absolutely improve as a leader because so much of it is about planning. It's about strategy. It's about thinking and not just sort of doing some of this by the seat of your pants. Mm, boy. And isn't that important today yeah. <laughs> of all, of all times to keep in mind. Can, can we switch gears here a little bit and talk about higher education leadership specifically? Mm -hmm. uh, you've, you've consulted with uh, leaders of, as I said, all types of organizations, but you also live as an academic. You're a faculty member. You direct, you founded, and you direct this uh, program, very unique program at Baypath. And I'm wondering if you have, uh, what your perspective is in terms of what you see with higher education leaders in particular. And obviously we're in the midst of these unprecedented days. And so there are challenges 
uh, unique challenges facing higher ed leaders today. But maybe stepping back, I'm I'm curious from your experience whether there's anything uh, a little different in terms of the challenges, opportunities facing higher ed leaders. Uh, are these organizations uh, different than other kinds of organizations in terms of what leaders need to keep in mind? I think there are certainly some differences. Um, and as you mentioned, right now, um, there's a tremendous pressure on academic institutions to do things differently. Um, you know, they've grown in a certain way. And, you know, there are different factors that are influencing change. And, and obviously, the COVID-19 crisis is yet another that's, you know, getting laid on top of this. And, and people are asking, what does the future of education look like? Um, so, so I absolutely think that there's a lot of pressure. Um, I think one of the things that makes academia a bit difficult um, is because there sort of seems to be a, a I guess I might put it as a, a bit of a locus of power uh, or a, a locus of focus, if you will. Um, uh, instead of one sort of vision for an organization, I, I feel a lot of times like academic institutions get pulled in lots of different directions. You've got you know, administration trying to run the the university from an organizational and business standpoint. Then you have faculty who have their needs and, and wants and desires. And then you have students um, who all also have their own interests and things along those lines. And so in some regard, you know, with a, a business, if you have a product that you're selling, you know, it everybody is aligned with that product, what you're doing, how you're doing it, how you're producing it. In academia, you know, it's a little different. There's lots of different views of how you do things effectively. And I think that for a leader, that can be hard. Um, you know, it, it, I'm imagining and have heard a little bit from folks in academia, it's a bit like herding cats. You know, you have people with some very strong opinions. You have people, you have obviously very bright folks who are working in academia. Um, and and they have, uh, you know, ideas about how things should go. And, and so I think as a leader, you're doing a lot of stakeholder management. You're, you're dealing with a lot of different constituencies at any one given time, which I think makes it difficult. Um, and I certainly think um, at bigger universities as well, there's a lot of bureaucracy that, you know, to get decisions made and to do things is difficult and to act quickly is even harder. Uh, and I think that that's something, you know, when you have a university of 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people, um, it's really difficult to get things done quickly and efficiently and in a sort of agile way, which is sometimes necessary when it comes to leadership. So I think those things, and I, I don't know if all that makes sense, but I think that those things sort of separate academia a bit from a, a normal organization that, that has their challenges. Well, and it, it's no wonder, I guess, that the tenure of presidents and provosts keeps getting shorter year by mm -hmm. year. I think uh, for provosts, I, the last that I, the last statistic I saw was less than four years is the average tenure. I think for presidents, it's a little mm -hmm. bit more, but not not much. And I think your your description of uh, the 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 different constituents that need to be pleased and balanced uh, is a really, uh, a really important point. What that suggests is that for any leader, you're balancing the potential for high levels of conflict, right? Coming from a lot of different yep. directions or, or different groups. And so if you're gonna survive in the role, if you're gonna, if you're gonna make it to the average tenure and survive even mm -hmm. longer, what what can you do as a leader? Uh, what are do you have some specifics that a leader should keep in mind, or things that they can do to keep things from blowing up? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a couple that I think are really valuable. Um, the first is that I think most people's view of conflict is a negative one, uh, and that they sort of loathe it when it arises. And I would try to encourage folks to see that differently. Um, you know, conflict in my mind serves a purpose because what it does is it shine, shines a light on something that's not working. Um, it doesn't mean that there isn't a problem if there's no conflict. Um, it just means that, that that problem has not risen to the surface yet. And so if you see conflict as 
um, serving that purpose of bringing issues to the forefront that exist and that need attention, that's valuable. And, and I find that a lot of people want to move away from conflict. It's a little bit like the Chinese finger trap. You know, when you move away from conflict, it gets harder and harder to deal with. When you go toward it, um, you're addressing it. You're paying, giving people the respect that they feel they need to continue your um, handling the problem that needs attention. So the first thing I would say is to try to view conflict as, as something that is, is not necessarily destructive. Because to me, conflict is kind of neutral. It's part of the decision-making process. Um, how, it, you know, how it gets addressed makes it positive or negative. I mean, you can think of times when you conflicted with somebody and if you were able to deal with it effectively, you both came out of it with a renewed sense of the relationship and a level of trust that, that went deeper than what you had. So, so I think the first thing is how do people view conflict um, <clears throat> and, and to try to see that it can be productive. And I think the second thing is, is being proactive. Um, too often we wait till problems arise. And I would encourage leaders to look at the landscape that they're dealing with and say, where do I see some challenges? You know, every structure that we work in produces conflict inadvertently between different groups. You know, one group might have a metric here and another group might have a metric there that inadvertently come into conflict. And I think when you step back and look at the structure of the system you're working in, um, you can identify those and you can be proactive in trying to manage that. Or you can think about how do we alter the system to try to relieve those pressure points. But I think the one thing, and one of my favorite quotes, um, is that conflict, unlike wine, does not age well. And I think that you've got to really um, convince yourself that when a problem comes up, get into problem-solving mode and deal with it. Um, there is, I've never seen a conflict that gets avoided, um, that gets easier to deal with, unless it's really purposefully avoided, you know, that somehow you think that time is on your side and if you leave it alone, the problem will get better, not worse. More often than not, people avoid conflicts because they don't know what to do with it. They've never learned how to deal with it effectively. And so things get worse. You know, a, a conflict that starts between two people begins to multiply and other people get brought into the fray. Sides begin to be taken. Um, what starts as a single issue that is problematic becomes a multi-issue thing uh, and, and usually goes to the intangible realm of who we are as a person. So it comes down to identity, respect, things like that. Um, so I think if you can do those few things, you're going to be well ahead. Um, and if you don't really know how to deal with conflict, you're not alone. Um, mm. And I would really encourage folks to, to you know, not only get some help with that, but to get some help with it for as many people in your organization as possible. Because the organizations that I've worked with, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll be asked to do a training in conflict resolution or difficult conversations or negotiation, whatever it might be. And it's usually, you know, a lot of times it will be um, for, you know, X group. And if it's not a huge organization, I will really try to encourage the entire organization to do um, these kinds of trainings, because if people, you know, down uh, at the lower levels of an organization are schooled in effective conflict resolution, and yet people at the higher levels aren't, and what they say and do doesn't match, then um, all of the training that those folks just went through isn't really going to help them very much. So, so sure. it, really, it really needs to be an organizational change and seeing... Um, conflict in a particular way and saying, hey, we're all going to learn how to do this together. Yeah, boy, that is such a good, good suggestion. You know, I'm thinking about all of the ways in which conflict plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. Something as basic as uh, the, the troubleshooting that our frontline staff often have to do with students and yeah. their families. And we put oftentimes younger professionals in these roles and don't train them for how to effectively deal with the conflicts that they are confronted with on a daily basis. And so what you're suggesting has relevance and application in so many areas across the institution, but I, I really resonate with 
what you're suggesting in terms of there need there needs to be a very intentional strategy that extends from the top to the bottom of the yeah, organization. And, and I will say that I have seen that uh, in a lot of the organizations that I work with, the best ones. I mean, I've worked with one company for 22 years now as a consultant and um, <clears throat> and done a course for them called Reframing Conflict. And uh, and they are by far, they still have issues because you know dealing with conflict, being effective leaders, being an effective negotiator is a journey. It's not a destination. It's something that you just keep getting better at and you have to keep working at it. But they are one of the most um, well-run organizations that I've ever been around because they have taken the time to teach people these skills. You have the experience, you've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed your dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD Degree Completion Program offers qualified candidates with the opportunity to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and the executive management skill set you need to lead and transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. From the very beginning, you'll be matched with a faculty advisor and a small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and support. With Baypath University, there is no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of education leaders. For more information, visit our website at www.baypath.edu slash academics slash graduate programs. Don't wait any longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. just a little bit deeper in terms of this current environment in which we are working. For higher ed leaders in particular, is there any other guidance that you would provide in this time of uncertainty? Uh, and I, you know, I know from, and, and you know, from working on a college campus, faculty aren't sure about what's going to happen. Staff aren't sure. Students aren't sure. So what, what's a leader mm -hmm. to do uh, in terms of managing that uncertainty and the angst that's a normal part of not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, sure. It's, it's difficult. It really is. And um, most people don't handle uncertainty well. They don't handle change well. Um, and so you're starting from that sort of perspective, right, that, 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 that a lot of folks struggle with that. I think there's a couple of things. One is um, as difficult it is, as it is, transparency is so fundamental uh, at, at a point like this. Um, because if you are not transparent, if you do not convey the difficult facts of what is going on and that people know is happening, um, you really lose trust quickly. Um, you know, every leader that I know that's gone through a difficult times says that to me over and over again, that if you're not transparent, if you don't deal with the hard facts, but also provide rays of hope, you know, and, and realistic rays of hope, not unrealistic, because, you know, I, there's no question that the rule when it comes to most leadership, you know, is under promise and overperform. Um, that's the best formula for success, because what you're doing is you're helping to set people's expectations, which is really important at a time like this. But that transparency piece is just so important because it, it goes really to the core of who you are as a leader. And I think when, when we look back at leaders, Winston Churchill um, and, and folks like that who dealt with difficult times, they've often been praised for that kind of transparency and straight talk. So, so I think that's important along with the expectations that you have to manage uh, with folks and, and being realistic uh, 
as well as 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 providing people with a sense that hey we're going to get through that and i think if you listen to the most effective leaders now that's what you hear is look here's where we are this is difficult people are dying on a daily basis we have to be smart about how we go about opening the economy and these kinds of different things and we're going to get there so you know that's one piece of advice the other part is there's a concept called adaptive leadership that was espoused by a guy named Ronald Heifetz at, at Harvard. And he wrote a book called Leadership with Others, and he's written some others that, that have um, come after the fact. But the principle that he tries to get at, or the principles that he tries to get at in that book and in his work in general, is that basically there are two kinds of problems. There are technical problems and there are adaptive problems. Technical problems are those where we can look at it and we can identify what the problem is. And therefore, we know what that type of problem is. So we have usually some answers for what to do there. Adaptive problems like the COVID-19 crisis are different. Um, in part, you're not quite sure what the problem is and, and how to get your head around it and what it actually look like, looks like and feels like. Um, you know, with COVID-19, it seems like every time we make good, something else happens. You know, recently there's been this challenge with young kids and, and getting these rashes and high fevers and, right, and that didn't manifest itself early on. Um, so, so this is an adaptive problem, which means that we don't really know the parameters of it or what it looks like or what it feels like completely. And more to the point, we don't know how to address it that we have to take a, sort of an iterative adaptive approach where we try things and we see what works, which is where testing came from, which is where you know, tracing and all of these things are emerging as best practices, right? You, you're not, you didn't see those early on because we didn't know about them. You know, this was a new virus and so we didn't know what that looked like. But I think what you're seeing is this iterative process of discovering that the importance of these different things about wearing a mask and all of these things and how those are helping to keep down, you know, the spread. And, and so when you have a problem like COVID-19 or when you have a problem like uncertainty in higher education, um, that way of thinking, that way of approaching a, a situation makes the most sense because otherwise you're actually using some hubris and saying, don't worry, we got this when you don't, have this and it's a problem. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned Heifetz and adaptive leadership. That's, uh, I don't know if you, if you and I have ever talked about this, but that is the, uh, one of the approaches that we are teaching in the doctoral program in higher mm -hmm. ed leadership at Bay Path. And for all the reasons that you are, you are mentioning, um, it's, it's a, a very, very helpful approach particularly when you're in the midst of the kind of uncertainty that we are dealing with right now. What you're saying is, is uh, common sense in some ways, and yet very, uh, there are way too, too few leaders who have the courage to do what you're suggesting. And I'm curious, I, is, is it hubris? Is it fear? What, what's behind uh, the, the reluctance to, to go out and uh, admit you don't mm. know. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's a little bit like, um, let me just use a little bit of an analogy and then I'll loop back to what you're saying. It's a little bit like entrepreneurs. If you think about entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs are often told their ideas are no good uh, and you know that um, they're never gonna make it, all those kinds of things. One of my good friends who I grew up with is an entrepreneur and, and I was talking to him one day about confidence and. And how do you know where that line is between being confident and overconfident? And he said, you know, this is the problem because with entrepreneurs, you have to put aside the criticism and believe deeply in what it is that you're you know, trying to do with this company or the organization you're trying to create. And yet the downside is that you stop listening to people and you stop listening to good advice when you should be taking it in. And I think that for a lot of leaders, um, they're getting all kinds of advice, you know, especially if we think to the political realm, they're often getting lots of advice from lots of different people. And, um, and so instead of getting pulled in lots of different directions that creates uncertainty, even though it might create a better solution, they, 
they tend to say, no, I think I know the solution to this and I'm just gonna stay laser focused on that. So, so I think that that comes about and develops a little bit of hubris in you. Let me switch gears here a little bit. We talked at the beginning about the fact that you are the founder of a highly enrolled graduate program at Bay Path. I remember uh, well when you first had the idea for this program, the Master of Science in uh, Leadership and Negotiation, and it's a really unique program. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about why you developed this program, what your vision was for it, and uh, what what you've seen as a result of the work you've done with now many, many students over the course of the program's life. Sure. I mean, let me just begin by saying it's been an absolute labor of love. I have enjoyed every minute of doing this, uh, and I have you to thank for it um, <laughs> in many ways. And, and really, in many, when we talked that first time, and you said to me that, that you really wanted to create a leadership program, but you didn't quite know exactly how to make it distinct from some of these others. And when I started talking about negotiation, you know, your eyes lit up because you understood immediately the connection. And so for me, it was easy in that regard. I've always seen the, the yin yang of leadership and negotiation. Um, all that said, you know, I got my PhD because I really enjoy teaching. Uh, you know, I like to write when I have something to say. I like to do research when when I, you know, again, I'm interested in exploring a subject, but, but teaching is my love. And, and not every place lets you do that and lets you focus on um, teaching and Bay Path um, does without question. And, and the other thing that I've come to really appreciate, and I think in part why you all went with this idea and this program, because it was a bit of a risk, um, <laughs> is because there's an entrepreneurial spirit at Bay Path. There's a, a different way of thinking um, and you all saw the possibilities of this and, and that's what you need to get a program like this off the ground. Um, you know, I had worked for many years at, at Harvard and in other places and, and I really wanted to come back to academia in a way that would let me teach. I remember very vividly about a month before you and I met, my wife had said to me, you know, if you, as you're making this shift, like, what do you really want to do? And I said, I would love to find a small school who would really let me teach. And in an ideal world, let me develop a program that doesn't exist. And I, somebody must have been listening <laughs> because that's exactly what happened. And it doesn't come, those kinds of opportunities don't come all uh, along a lot in life to have that, you know, to have that ability to kind of develop something from scratch. And, um, and so you know, when I started to take on the challenge of saying, how is it that we can create a program for people so that they can achieve their, their maximum potential? And again, for me, everybody can be an, a, a more effective leader and a more effective negotiator. Um, and so that's the premise that I start with. And I believe strongly that, that people can learn these things. And so when, when I set out to design this, I, I knew that this had to be more than skills. Skills are important. But, you know, you can get skills in an executive education program. Um, what we offer and what makes this different is it's a deep dive into human beings and dealing with human beings uh, productively, which, you know, again, amazingly, not many people get an opportunity to really study. And so we look at, you know, the important theories, but we also think strategically we spend a lot of time talking about strategy, about analysis. If you don't analyze something properly, then you know it's a little bit like going to the doctor and telling him that your head hurts and he's looking at your knee. Um, it doesn't really work well. So, you know, we have to equip students with the depths of what's necessary to do this effectively. And so, they learn theories, they learn strategy, they learn analysis, they learn the importance of preparation. And I'm gonna pause and say that if you talk to anybody who's a really good leader or negotiator, they will say that most of my efforts are in the preparation phase. They're thinking, they're brainstorming, they're imagining what things look like. And, and I would say that where a lot of people fail is inadequate preparation. They don't understand that and they don't put the time in. And <clears throat> I would also add to that that 
you don't want to walk into a situation, particularly a slightly uncertain one, say like the COVID-19 crisis, with a plan. Because plans are usually linear. They have one way of getting to an end goal. Um, and they often fall apart when the other side or the other people involved don't know what your plan is and don't, don't buy into it. So better to go at these kinds of situations sort of from a preparation point of view, a contingency planning point of view, if you will, so that you come up with, you have a clear end goal. You always have to aim, know where you're aiming, right? But you have multiple ways that you can get to that same end point. And I believe that that's really important. You know, I can tell you from a negotiation point of view, it's fundamentally important that, you know, negotiation, when you start down the road of negotiating, um, it's not uncommon that one avenue is blocked. And when I talk to people and say, I tried to negotiate, I say, well, what'd you do? Tell me, like, how'd you try? And they say, well, we talked and I offered this compromise of all and, and it didn't work. And so obviously we're not going to get there. I said, you didn't negotiate. You went down one road and it didn't work and you threw your hands up and gave up. That's not how effective negotiation works. Effective negotiation is that preparation piece. It's having multiple ways to get to the same end, but it's also about persistence and resilience. You know, the best negotiators that I know that I've had the privilege to work with over the years, if they go down a road and it's blocked, they're like, okay, next road, where is it? And they keep going until they find a solution. It's the art of the possible. And, yeah. and I think that you have to have that way of thinking. And so what I have seen in the students, and I will say that, <clears throat> you know, and, and for the listeners, I think the reason that this was a bit of a risk, which I didn't mention, is because the entire program is online. And I remember some folks at Baypath and elsewhere saying to me, how is it that you can do this completely online? Like, are you sure? And I, I had had the opportunity of teaching an online course back in 2003 at Simmons College um, to a group of physical therapy PhD students. <laughs> Not exactly my, you know, my, my um, focus in particular, yeah. but when they approached me and they said, can you do a negotiation class online? I said, I don't know, but let's give it a shot. And it was a fascinating experience. People thought I was crazy. Um, and, but it helped me to realize that in order to teach online effectively, you just have to think, what do I do in person and how do I take that and bring it to an online context? And back then, you know, the tools were so few and far between compared to today. Today, there's so much uh, to work with from a technological point of view that that meets the different learning styles that exist out there. Um, <clears throat> and so what I'm most proud of in terms of the students is that they come out of this program and they say to me, this has been life altering. And I never imagined they would say that. I imagined they would say, I feel like I've grown as a leader or a negotiator. And when they use words like life altering and transformative, um, I'm speechless. And I'm yeah. and and it's the quality of the students who come in and they're passionate about wanting to learn this. And it's not easy. You know, I tell students that you have to turn the mirror on yourself to be a really effective leader and negotiator. So much of all of this starts with you. It's not out there, it's not the people. I mean, that's part of the equation. It's kind of a 50-50 deal. Part of it is figuring out how do I deal with a difficult person or difficult dynamics, but the other part is how do I figure out how do I deal with myself? You know, one of my close colleagues that I've worked with a long time at Harvard, a guy named William Urey, he was one of the authors of a very popular book called Getting to Yes that was written in is still on the bestseller list, so he's quite a happy man. Um, but he, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Getting to Yes with Yourself. And because he understood that one of the biggest challenges in negotiation is, is you and, and negotiating with yourself and talking yourself out of things and not asserting for yourself because you're afraid of the other person's reaction. And when I see students come to me and say, you know, I can't believe what I've learned, it's, um, it's really heartwarming. And, it, and I'm really glad that they are getting so much out of the program and that they're doing it in a context um, where it works for them. You know, the online world has a flexibility to it that's great. And the vast majority of the students in the program are working full time and have families. And so yeah. this is the only way they could do it. 
when I think about the impact that you've had on so many students through this program and with your consulting, that's something that I, I hope that you uh, relish in terms of, you know, your own mission in life and the work that you're doing in terms of empowering others and helping them find, find their voice. So let me, Josh, wrap this up. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I, I could listen to you go on and on uh, in terms of leadership and negotiation uh, mm -hmm. all day, but um, we do need to, to bring this to a close. And you've got this great, great book. One of the, one of the wonderful things about your writing is the fact that it allows your thinking to get out to a much broader audience and uh, everyone can learn uh from what you are, from what you're doing and the work that you're doing. So can you tell us, just in wrapping things up, about the book you have coming out uh, the end of August, uh, published by Wiley, which is uh, quite, a, quite an accomplishment. Congratulations on that. Uh, but what, what's the book going to be about and why might somebody be interested in it? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun to work on it. Uh, so th the title is the book of real world negotiations, successful strategies from business government and daily life. And I wrote it because, um, you know, I'm often talking to people about negotiation in particular, you know, when I go to parties, it's a little bit like being a doctor, you know, when you tell people what you do, doctors, you know, they start saying, Oh, my knee hurts, etc. Um, and when you work in this world, people say, Oh, I've got a negotiation. And you know, what do I do about it? And um, I, I think that there are a lot of popular misconceptions about negotiation, that it's all about compromise. It's all about giving things up. A lot of people think it's, it's for the weak and that you shouldn't be engaging in it and things like that. And so I've had a lot of those conversations. And, and um, I also have come to understand the power of stories. Um, to me, um, <clears throat> You know, people understand theories and concepts and skills and, and things like that, but people um, embrace stories and they understand them. And you don't need to often um, say more than just sharing a story because stories are, are filled with lessons. They're filled with um, ways about thinking of a problem that's different than somebody telling you. And so I thought, you know, if I could put together a book of real world negotiations, that showed people that what effective negotiation really looks like is much more about creativity and problem solving than it is compromise. Um, and some of these other popular misconceptions that that's the best way to do this. And that I know these exist because I've heard them when I, um, many years ago when I was working back at Harvard, I would go to faculty dinners and listen to some of the best negotiators in the world talk about these stories of successful negotiation. And I thought to myself, these have to get out to the rest of the world. And so the book is a compilation really of, of, of short stories, if you will, of successful negotiation um, from the business realm, um, from the government and from the world around us. And, and I think when you read it, I'm really hoping that people will come out of um, having, having gone through these cases and say, huh, okay, that's not what I thought negotiation was all about. And, um, you know, there's a, a wonderful quote that uh, Samuel Moody says that, you know, when you're trying to change somebody's mind, instead of telling them that, that a stick is crooked, lay a, a straight stick next to it. And the book, I think, is really designed to do that. It's designed to say, hey, don't listen to me. Just take a look at these cases and read through them and see the thinking and the way in which people were able to overcome really difficult challenges to find agreements that seemed uh, almost impossible. And so that's what the book's about. And I think it's not only for academicians who teach this um, and students who are learning this, but I think it's for the rest of the world too, who negotiate on a daily basis and have a lot to learn from those folks who have been doing this and, and reaching these agreements in, in challenging situations. Oh, indeed. Well, I'm gonna look forward to that book coming out and once it does, perhaps I can have you back on the podcast and you can you can share some of the uh, some of your favorite stories, perhaps from the from the case study. Sure, I'd be so, happy to. That'd be great. So let me just end by asking you, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you or something that you'd just like to leave our listeners with? 
Um, <clears throat> I, I think the biggest thing is is not to look to other people um, to solve your problems. You know, I honestly think we live in a world where when a problem or an issue comes up, people start to um, worry or get concerned um, instead of getting into problem solving mode. <clears throat> and so, you know, and, and maybe that means that they call a lawyer. And what I would encourage people to do is um, try to learn about these skills, whether it's formal or informal. I mean, if you Google leadership and negotiation, you're going to find a wealth of resources out there. Um, and I think if you put in a little bit of time to learn about these things, you will be able to deal with this stuff um, and the things that life throws at you on a daily basis much better and much differently. So I would just encourage people to stop looking to others to solve these kinds of issues and look to themselves. They're, you know, we're more than capable and it, it really means um, trusting yourself and educating yourself about how to do this. Mm. Well, that is certainly a positive and an inspiring note to end on. So Josh, Dr. Joshua Weiss, uh, thank you again for being with us. Uh, I, as I said, I've learned so much um, from uh, this time we've had together. And I know that our listeners uh, will certainly appreciate and learn from, from your wisdom and your uh, perspectives as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Melissa Morse-Holson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with executive coach and faculty member, Dr. Christina Hallett. These are stressful times for higher ed leaders. Using her background in neuroscience and clinical psychology, Dr. Hallett has helped countless leaders harness the power of stress and remain resilient even in the most direst of times, like right now. Subscribe now to be sure you don't miss out on this conversation and Dr. Hallett's very timely guidance. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.